This is Sea Stories, lives touched by the sea. Hello, my name is Pat Hannan. Bray is my hometown and the people you can hear in the background are the hardy year-long swimmers who have just arrived back on the beach and have been exuberated with the vitamin C from their daily dip here in Bray. In the 70s and 80s, we spent our summers here on the seafront, down the strand as we used to refer to it. And it was uh, a little bit different there. The promenade was actually about 15 foot higher off the seafront, off the beach, than it is now. And there was various granite steps at intervals along the seafront that you could get down to the beach. The beach has since been reconstructed. It was done to save the prom and prevent winter flooding. And it was during the 50s and 60s that Bray had what we would call the, the halcyon days. It was a time when the town was generally bursting at the seams with holidaymakers, mainly from Britain and Northern Ireland. In this programme, compiled from a two-part series which was originally aired in 2008, we hear the stories from those who were here and who fondly remember Bray Seafront as a hive of activities in the summer when it was thronged with overseas visitors in the 50s and 60s. This is one mile long, Bray Seafront remembered. This is One Mile Long, a radio documentary about Bray Seafront. One Mile Long, Bray Seafront remembered. Well, I remember coming out here when I was very young, when I'm talking about 18 or 19, around that age. And Bray was always a place that we were brought to for our holiday. And it was a place we always came to all through the years. Bray was very important to us because it was like going away to have a holiday to be brought to Bray. And then, you see, they had all the boats, they had the paddy boats, they had everything like that. And then, you see, you had the band. There used to be always a band out here. I'm Mary Davies, and I'm the author of That Favourite Resort, which is a history of Bray from earliest times right through to the present. Well, it starts earlier than most people think goes back the best part of a hundred years right back into the mid to late 1700s when sea bathing became fashionable sea bathing not for having a nice swim but for health reasons the better off people from Dublin who could afford to come out started coming out to Bray and the women changed in bathing huts and walked down a plank led by a bathing woman into the water and the men of course had to bathe somewhere completely different because there was no question of mixed bathing in those days. They wore these heavy woolen garments, which must have weighed a great deal when they got out of the water. No wonder they needed helping back into the bathing huts. And you only stayed in the water for a few minutes and you got uh, your head pushed right down under the waves. big change, of course, came in 1854, as everybody in Bray knows, with the opening of the railway. William Dargan, of course, was already famous as a railway engineer and for his role in the, the Great Exhibition in Dublin in 1851. 
was involved in the railway company and he saw the potential of Bray as a seaside resort. William Dargan and Edward Breslin, together with the local man, John Quinn, who was the owner of Quinn's Hotel, decided to lay out all the seaward part of Bray as a new style holiday resort, the kind that they were looking at across the sea in Britain, and in fact that they were comparing particularly with Brighton, which was the most fashionable of the British resorts because it's where the British royal family went to and so on. And they thought that Bray had a role as the Brighton of Ireland. After the Second World War, it had a great resurgence because British people were faced with continuing austerity. They still had food rationing. They'd had this for six years and it continued. They had clothes rationing. They hadn't seen a decent piece of meat since 1939. And they flocked over to Ireland, and particularly to Bray, in large numbers. It must have been a great place to come because it was foreign to them. I mean, at a time when people didn't travel abroad very much, it was just that little bit different. It had different postage stamps and it had green letterboxes instead of red ones you get in Britain. And it had all this food and people rejoiced in that. Oh, when you're smiling When you're smiling I'm Dermot Bernach. I got a job in 1946 and I approached the uh, local superintendent and the job was giving out ration coupons uh, to visitors. The rationing still went on in England for maybe two or three years after the war uh, and there was, you know, gra grave shortages of food all over Europe. So a lot of people came over and on Monday mornings in particular, there used to be huge queues of these people. And there'd be four of us giving out the ration coupons to them. They would then hand those to their landlords or landladies. When Kevin and John Cook, they were of Irish origins, but they came over and they were remarkable fellows. John got this notion of attracting visitors through Radio Luxembourg. Some talking about miles and miles of Golden Strand, and there was never miles and miles of Golden Strand in Bray. It was always a beach rather than a strand. You're listening to One Mile Long, a radio documentary about Bray Seafront on East Coast FM. I moved down to Bray about five years after the war. Desmond Headley writes. I saw the advertisement for male actor or something like that in a concert party in Bray. So I wrote for it and I got the job and I arrived here. And that was it. Stayed. There were only two concert parties doing seaside work in Ireland at the time. One was Liam Heffernan in Newcastle County Down and my friend here Clifford Bolton who had run before this a paper factory so he said and he sold the paper factory because he wanted to be on the stage himself 
mad keen. He mannered well into his 50s. The trouble was, in Newcastle, they talked terms, the council talked terms with Liam, and they paid him. And he provided the concert party and had no financial worries. Just everything was all right and he had his profit every week or whatever it was. Here, the council expected the person who got the job to find the money to pay the people. Now, fortunately, Clifford had a few quid after selling his factory, quite a lot, I think, and a very nice man. He had a few problems, and the main problem was nobody wanted to go bottling. Bottling is the word for going around the crowd, collecting money in a tin can. And when you would go around, I only did it a couple of times, and I wouldn't do it anymore. His wife had to do it. Bad. Uh, you'd get washers in the thing. People would even take the buttons off their flies and put them in and all kinds of stuff like this and when you get back off their bottling you'd be furious you know you'd be banjaxed for the rest of the evening or the rest of the afternoon or whatever because you'd be furious that you're working so hard into the wind maybe and that's what you get two washers and a halfpenny next year didn't I see the same advertisement from Clifford again <laughs> and uh, I said there's two lads here, Val Doonigan and uh, Bruce Clark, both from Waterford. So anyway, down we came. I introduced them to him and we never looked back. And we had a great year. Great year. The young ones who used to come out from Dublin to see Val, <laughs> to be queued up waiting for him. I want you to tell me why you walked out on me. I'm so lonesome every day There were five dance halls in Bray those days. We're talking of, say, five years after the war. There was GBH in Quinsborough Road, up above where Duns is now, upstairs. Then you came down and you went halfway down the seafront and you had the Ace of Spades halfway along the seafront and obviously on the right-hand side. Not very big, but very popular, and they did matinees. Then you had the eagle's nest up on the top of the head. You had to go up somehow or other, climbing and climb back by dark. Then you had the Arcadia. Lovely, and anybody who was anybody wanted to play it. Ruby, Murray and McDellahunty, they came. They were very popular. Softly, softly, come to me. I think Ruby Murray was the only one ever to have five in the top ten at one time. Very nice woman, but hit the bottle later. Softly, softly. And O'Roy Orbison, oh, that was a night. I feel so bad, I've got a worried mind. The night of Roy Orbison, the buses, double-deckers, went from railway station up to Malloy's. Nothing but double-decker buses the whole way. I'm going back someday. When you were going into the dance hall, if you were sober, you didn't get in if you weren't. You paid for your ticket for the Arcadia, and you bought your bus ticket at the same time. And if you wanted it, you could pay for your taxi ticket as well. There were 
was also a dance hall. Very nice. I loved it. In the International itself, in the hotel, which of course is no longer there. And they, on a Saturday night, did a cabaret and a meal and a dance. Uh, the Moonglows was the name of the little band. Uh, and the signature tune was Moonglow. I'm standing just opposite Mantona B&B and for those old Brayites where the old Eagle House that Jim Doyle used to run and on this sort of rectangular piece of grass was where Pat Mooney, uh, deck chair Pat, uh, used to run his uh, deck chairs and his putting green and he was my dad. This is where it all happened. This is where my dad had the putting green. And if you saw the state of the grass now in terms of length, because it was his pride and joy, because you can imagine with putting, it had to be pristine, it had to be rolled. And I remember a big, huge roller that he used to take out and, and be cutting the grass. And, you know, there were about four courses. If you can visualise where the order of Malta Hut is in Bracey Front, he had the little stand, the putting green shed as it was called. It was bright blue and he used to have his golf sticks stacked up in the front with the golf balls and people used to come and, and pay. Right next to where the hut was, um, the, he used to have the deck chairs stacked up. If anybody can remember what it was like in Bray, they were brightly coloured wooden chairs with different coloured nylon covering on them. And I was usually, as a very young child, be sitting in the chair to try and encourage all these people to rent the chair out for a, for a few hours. In the 60s, late 60s, I was born in 61, uh, around 1967, 68, you'd have Welsh Week, you'd have Scots Week, you'd have Northern Ireland Week. And the, the, the sounds of all these people who'd come visiting, and they would either rent cottages or stay in B&Bs or the local hotels. And it was very busy and very bright. And I remember bright sunshine and blue skies, you know, and the weather was always good. And I remember people sitting on the deck chairs and then going up to get their brown pots of tea and bringing their trays back and the periwinkle man. And, you know, it was just a hive of activity and all the different accents. And then, of course, you had the dubs coming out, you know, they used to sort of come into the Bray train station and disgorge and it was co so colourful and uh, very, very busy and quite a magical as growing up, I remember, you know, and then you had, you had people bathing in the sea. There was, we had, a, we had an actual strand, we had sand. <laughs> we didn't have stones then, we yeah. had sand. Yeah. So you'd have people bringing their deck chairs down onto the strand and sitting there and having their breakfast, lunch, dinner and tea before either they got the last train out of Bray back to Dublin or they went back to their own hotels if they were visiting for the week. Excuse me, madam. I'm, I'm making a radio programme about Bray years ago. Are you from Bray? Well, this man was at school in Bray. Yeah, all Dublin would move out here for a Sunday and a Saturday because uh, it, the trains came out here and it was convenient, you know. Do you see where the flags are above? There used to be uh, chairs went up there. And then down in the valley on the left-hand side where the steps are across from that, there was three or four uh, concrete swimming pools. And they used to dive in there, but they're all worn away now, as you see. Yes. Those houses you see there just above the Brayhead Hotel there, they were all small shops. And most of them, I believed at that time, that there were uh, people that came out of Germany during the war and they used to have all kinds of small shops selling those postcards and all that type of thing. 
and they used to sell candy floss and ice cream as well. And the slot machines were all along the whole front. The, the young lads from around the town, when the people would come in on a Sunday, you see, they wouldn't be used to slot machines. And some of the young lads used to put paper up the spout of the slot machine and the people would put in and they didn't know they won. And they'd take down the paper and they'd get the, the few pennies or whatever above it. Oh, yes. On a fine Sunday, the, on the wall there opposite the Brayhead Hotel, all the nice girls from Dublin used to come out there. Now I'm talking about the 90, early 50s. And they used to sit along that wall and, and uh, they were admired and maybe would have eye contact. And they'd go off to Brayhead for the day. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was a, a very lively place extremely lively place the boys watch the girls while the girls watch the boys who watch the girls go by eye to eye they solemnly convene Brendan Coleman, Raheem Park whose father was the operations manager on the Brayhead chairlift this would have been all part of the, the chairlift eagle's nest it was all part of Quinn's business there. So there was a few caravans there. Campsite did very, very well. My father worked in Red Island for Eamon Quinn, so the, the division started there. I think that's where my father met my mother at a dance in Red Island. And I have a little book there now that I can show you there that has, um, it's just an old book of the fathers and he kept a little daily log. Right there we are, the 24th of the 8th, 1952. It carried 2,679 passengers. Uh, there we are, the 15th of the 852, 1,295. So it had its peak, it had its peak. Well, the hours of operation were, uh, well, on a day like today, it'd be 10 o'clock in the morning, and it could go till 11 o'clock at night. But then weather dictated a lot. Uh, they couldn't operate in high winds, especially if they were coming from the west. They sort of more or less opened. They always had a go. Easter was the start. So... With the good weather at a, at a late Easter, that would be the, the start. You, you, build, you start to build up the momentum for the summer. Of course, when the school holidays came and whatnot, that was it. it was, yeah. They were going full-time, seven days a week. Well, the last fair I can remember uh, when I was around there was two and six up. Half dollar, they call it in those days, and it was one and six down. I think that would have been the last, or about the last price yeah. I can remember. It would have been cheaper previous to that. Maintenance on the chairs was sort of an always, it was almost a non going thing because they were checked like every day. The father had his little routine and he, all the chairs were numbered. And there was a tripping switch that would ind- indicate if there was a problem or something like that. They were tested. And then every two or three years, I think it was two years, they, they get a new rope. And that, that, that used to be a three day job, putting the new rope on and You'd have about ten guys putting a half mile splice in it and that sort of thing. That, that was after that it was painting and things like that, you know. We had two dogs, Rex was the dog's name, and uh, it used to be a thing in the morning at ten o'clock in the mornings there, the chairs would start at ten. There was always a few people, you know, got up early from their bed and breakfast, came up and they'd be looking at the chairs. They'd say, oh God, I wouldn't go on that. Here Rex <laughs> used to put Rex onto the chair and push her out and up she go, no bother. Well the tradition in northern England was very much for each industrial town to close down for a week so that you had the, the Blackburn week and the Berry week and the Wakefield week and so on at the British resorts. And, of course, that was echoed over here. And then the northern people also came down, um, a lot of them to escape the 12th of July. And then the Scots came down 
later on in the season. So you would have had a different set of accents in Bray at different times. People would come over with their heavy suitcases and find they had nowhere to stay and would be trailing around the town. And I'm told that, in fact, the cinemas actually stayed open all night so that people could sit somewhere and doze off while watching a film. And um, you didn't book ahead because you probably didn't have a telephone. You might just have written a letter and organised something, but a lot of people would arrive. Maybe they'd come over on the boat to to Dunleary or they'd come out from Dublin by train. So they arrived at Bray Railway Station with their heavy suitcases and they probably looked left and right and said, which way shall we go to try and find ourselves somewhere to stay? And you trailed around the seafront until you found somewhere with vacancies. You're listening to One Mile Long, Bracey Front Remembered, on East Coast FM. This is like a spring day in Israel, you know. And my wife was born here. Well, I came here as a child. On top of the head there, there was, um, they'd built some pools, you know, seawater pools. And then you didn't have to go in the sea, and there was, uh, you know, you could dive off uh, these things into the pools. And you had to pay to go into that. I don't think it exists anymore. Well, I have fond memories, and we've just been paddling, myself and my sister. And all those stones bring back all those memories. John Welch, originally from the Strand Road in Bray, but living in England now for 40-odd years, but come home regular on holidays. The 50s, mainly, is what I'd remember first. Uh, and there was always a way to make a shilling when you were down on the beach, because they used to do what we call tacking their own boats, where the lads who owned the boats would stand on the seafront, and as the visitors went by, they, would you like to hire the boats, sir? And then the man who owned the boat had turned to us and said, here you are, row these people out, because they couldn't row. And of course, when you rowed them out, at the end of it, they'd always give you a shilling or sixpence. And that was your way of making a couple of pence then. Well, originally, the ones I remember, of course, are the, the rowing boats. The, ever before the pedal boats come along, there was quite a few lads. Little Jackie Cranley had a few boats, and Jack Salmon, quite a few more of them. And then there was an old chap called, his nickname was Hobbler Humphreys. And being a kid and a bit of an age at not knowing any better, I used to hear the older blokes talking about Hobbler Humphreys. And of course, one day I had an occasion to go to him. And instead of saying Mr. Humphreys, I said Hobbler, not knowing it was a nickname. <laughs> and the reason he had the nickname was he wore hobnail boots. And boy, Jess, he lashed them hobnail boots out of me, being a young scalp, calling them Hobbler. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a, a, a little memory that sticks with you. And of course, there was three motorboats then, the Congress, the Erden and the Emerald. She was smaller than the other two. We just called them the motorboat. They obviously had an inboard marine engine. And then one of the boats would do a trips around the bay. Adults are shilling and kiddies, sixpence, a half an hour trip. They'd go around as far as the big crab rocks and bring them back. They'd hold about 50. 
And then while that boat was doing the trips around the bay one day, the other boat would do the gravestone strip where they take people to gravestones and leave them ashore for an hour and then bring them back. And that was four shillings for adults and two shillings for kids. And then very much later on, they started doing the mackerel fishing in the mornings from the harbour where they take people out for a couple of hours mackerel fishing. And that was great for the visitors because they were allowed to keep the fish and they were delighted if they caught fish and everything else. The man who started the pedal boats, that was a bus driver on the 45 bus route. He was from Clonskay. Dick Merlin was his name. And he was a lovely man. And he'd been abroad on holidays in Spain and he thought he'd seen these pedal boats and thought they'd go well here. And they did go well. They, they took over from their own boats. You'd chat a girl up and you had someone fix up with you every night. Oh, it was tremendous. And good, but good fun as well. There was plenty of laughs with them and good crack. And of course, you'd have a couple of lads working in the hotels behind the bar and they'd come down with a girl they'd met. And they'd, Can we go on the boat, John? You'd let them on free. And of course, that night, then you go up with a girl and they'd give you a free point. So one worked for the other. <laughs> There was a very sudden collapse around about 1970. Bray had 600 rooms registered with Board Fulcher at the end of the 60s, and that fell to a third of that. It fell to 200 rooms by the 1980s. And it was the same in North Wales, Blackpool, Morecambe, Douglas Isle of Man, the whole south coast of Britain. It was part of a general collapse in the old-style seaside resorts about 1970, thereabouts. Uh, and there were two reasons for that. For one thing, the mini car and other small cars had come in and car ownership was much wider than it had been before. And once you had a car, you weren't going to go necessarily and stay in a seaside resort for a whole week. You were going to travel around the country and stay in B&Bs. And that gave people much more flexibility. And of course, the other big reason was the start of package holidays to the Mediterranean. Suddenly, everybody in Britain and Ireland found that they could go to the sun for their week or their fortnight's holiday, and they stopped coming to seaside resorts like Bray. Well, certainly from the 1960s onwards, more and more of the housing estates that now circle Bray were built. More and more people were traveling into Dublin, but still shopping in Bray. Industry came into Bray, both in Little Bray and the industrial estates on the south side. So that Bray never went through this period of terrible depression that happened in Britain. You can still go to a British seaside resort and all the shops along the seafront are boarded up. The great rows of great tall Victorian boarding houses, which we never really achieved in Bray, they were turned into flatlets and now they are let out to people on assistance and so on. And in fact, a number of the British seaside resorts count among the most deprived towns in Britain. So Bray escaped all that. Bray has done pretty well for itself, largely because of its proximity to Dublin. I'm Pat Hannan, and I'm back on the beach here in Bray. 
Well, today, Bray Seafront has undergone a total transformation with a new road layout, new lights, even the prom railings were sandblasted and have been given a new coat of dark navy blue, a kind of an inky blue, very faro ball altogether. Also, the bandstand, which was mentioned at the start of the programme, has been totally refurbished. Not only that, but loads of uh, bars and restaurants have opened up over the last decade or so and are thriving, not just in the summer, but all year long. And a bit like the Victorians who recognise the value of sea bathing, the prom is now full of people, even in the winter, walking for health. And you can hear all sorts of accents, not just English accents or Northern Ireland accents now. They're from Eastern Europe and everywhere else. The new Irish, as we uh, say. And I'm talking to one of the daily swimmers here, Liam Brennan. So, Liam, uh, what would you say about the people swimming today? I mean, you're one of the daily swimmers. Well, when I came to live on the seafront first, which is 40, 41, 42, 43 years ago, um, the only, this is at the north end where most of the swimmers go now. Um, the only winter swimmer that I can remember was the late Brian Savage, God rest him. But Brian was, he was a real swimmer. He just didn't get in for a dip and get back out. He'd go for a swim all, all the winter. But the, the odd thing about Brian was that as soon as he came back on shore, he, the first thing he'd do was dry his hands and light a, light a cigarette. <laughs> that was his big thing. I think he went for a swim to savour the cigarette. <laughs> and uh, and tell me he lived to a ripe old age. He didn't, unfortunately, no. He died, I think, in his 50s, yeah. unfortunately. Well, yeah. What would you say it is about the sea that you go in and you take the daily dip and I do it myself? I, what would you say to people? It's that? a tonic. Uh, seriously, it's, well, maybe it's like any other um, habit call it that if you don't do it you'll feel bad if you do do it you'll feel great it gives you sets you up for the day and the, the idea that the water is cold it's colder in the winter but the sensation of cold is it mostly in people's heads that you can feel cold and be cold but being cold is a totally different thing feeling cold is universal it's in your head it's imagination it's what would you call it being afraid of getting in it's not cold it's not cold enough to do you any harm or damage but it's cold enough to yeah g up the old immune system and 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 one of the people in the program at the start of this program uh, mentioned that the victorians used to come out in their bathing huts wheeled onto the water the the women would get in get plunged into the water back out but they did recognize um the, the, the great outdoor and the, the be- and the sea air that it was good for you and here we are and it seems to come back into vogue it is I think it is I think maybe it is a vogue because when I started swimming here off the, as, as I say I've lived on the seafront for 40 odd years but for years I didn't swim at all I mean literally I just have to walk across the road but I just didn't do it and about 10 years ago maybe less I came back from holidays in September. The weather was lovely. I looked out and I saw the sea and I said, oh, God damn it, the weather's lovely. This is a, a, a sin not to be able to get into the sea and go for a swim. So I came over, met Linda and Uli and the rest, and Les, of course, and we started from there. And now they weren't winter swimmers at the time. Les was, but the rest weren't. But by degrees, we stayed on till, ah, we stayed till the end of September. Then we stayed till October. We stayed till Halloween. Gosh, it's not bad. We'll stay till Christmas. I will stay till the New Year. By which time, nobody wanted to leave, and I think that's part of it. No one wants to be the first to give up. And once you hit February, you're at the lowest point. It is, at its, the water is at its lowest temperature. Now, I must say, I have to wear gloves at that time of year to just keep my fingers warm. But no, it's, it's, it's not difficult by any means. If you can make the time, it's well worth the effort.
Okay. Yeah. So I look forward to a healthy career down here. La mer le long des golfes clairs one Mile Long, Bray Seafront Remembered was produced by Pat Hannan and was a 21st century Vox production for East Coast FM. This programme was produced with financial support from the Sound and Vision Broadcasting Funding Scheme. Avec les anges, si pure, la mer, berger d'azur.